Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, in the name of Jesus, the Christ. Today we are going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the introduction of 1 Corinthians and also the first two chapters that Alan and I covered in 2 Corinthians. And I'm just going to mention some of the background again to you, but I encourage you to go back and to listen. In chapters 1 and 2, we are looking at Paul writing this second letter, which is actually the third letter that he has written. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that he wrote a previous letter to them. So 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians is his second letter, and now this is 2 Corinthians, his third letter. He's writing back to the church, to the believers in Corinth, to explain why he has delayed in his coming back. Also, there are two chapters that are designated, chapters 8 and 9, about this offering that he is collecting for the believers that are suffering back in Judea and in Jerusalem. And the last four chapters, chapters 10 through 13, are chapters about the spiritual battle that is going on for the believers in Corinth. And it's a very strong section in which he's writing about defending his apostleship, his integrity, the spiritual battle that is taking place back in Corinth, and his right to speak to them and have the influence upon their lives. Now remember, he is the apostle, the one that laid the foundation of Christ in the city of Corinth. He established this church. He has a right to speak to them. He was there for a year and a half. A, many people have come to faith in the city of Corinth because of his ministry. As you go back to 1 Corinthians and you see that letter that he wrote to them, he is addressing the many issues that have developed within that uh, congregation. Remember, initially it was in the synagogue. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They went to the house of Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue. So there are Jews and Gentiles that are part of this congregation, but predominantly it's a Gentile background congregation that has come to faith that never had a background in the Word of God. And we have talked about the city of Corinth, a city of immorality, 650,000 people within that city. 250,000 were free, 400,000 were slaves. They're coming from a Hellenistic background, a, a background of pantheism, sometimes any, even polytheism, with the belief in many gods or the belief that there, are, that there are many ways to God and pantheism. And so they're getting saved out of that background, and now they need discipleship. In 1 Corinthians, the second letter, which we described as 1 Corinthians, is a letter about progressive sanctification. You were babes, now you should be mature in the faith. But they're not truly growing up in the faith. And so there are many issues that have to be addressed. So he's addressing the 
um, divisions within that congregation, which is very natural within a Hellenistic culture of aligning yourselves with different leaders, different philosophers. But Paul writes to them to remember that we all come in agreement under the authority and the banner of Christ. So it's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas, Peter. It is about Christ. And then in chapter 5, he starts dealing with specific issues. And in chapter 5, immorality within the church that is going on that we don't even see in the Greek culture. Something that's going on that a young man is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't have to go back into all the details, but in that first letter, he deals with that. Chapter 6, lawsuits are going on between two believers in a secular court. We deal with the issue of singleness and the advantage of being single in the midst of a time of distress. We deal in chapter 8 with things sacrificed to idols. Do we eat or do we not eat? We deal with issues of indirect and directly things being sacrificed to idols in chapter 10. Chapter 11, the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Chapters 12 through 14, how the spiritual gifts should operate in a way that glorifies Christ and edifies the body of Christ. Chapter 15, a right understanding of the resurrection. So all of these things he has dealt with that should have produced a positive response However, there is a spiritual battle going on within the Corinthian church, and there are some that truly do not represent Christ that are fighting against Paul. And in this second letter, again, which is his third letter that we know for sure, we know that it's his third letter, he has to explain the reason why he delayed coming to them. Because initially, he said he was coming to them twice for quick visits. But in that first visit, it produced sorrow, pain, hurt within the church. And probably, we don't know for sure, but it's probably dealing with what he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That I want you to deal with it, but when I come, I will deal with it. You have to excommunicate. You have to put this man out of the church for the sake of redemption in the future. And so that the whole church is not contaminated by this sin, or there's, he uses this expression, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole batch. If you do not deal with this, you're arrogant before God, and it will destroy the whole body of Christ. So you have to kick out this man. And that's probably the issue when he came for that quick visit, that it caused a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Think about the family connections. Think about others that had relationship with the family, and it produced a lot of sorrow within the church. But he didn't come back after that visit, so he's going to be attacked uh, for not coming back. But the good thing that we see from this situation in chapter 2 is that it produced repentance. And as you look at chapter 2, and and when I say chapter 2, realize there in the original, there is not chapter and verse divisions. Uh, But as we look at the thought process of what we designate as chapter 2, it produced a person that it seems like repented of their sin, and he says, now is the time to forgive 
and to comfort this individual. And so he did not come back immediately, and Alan and I talked about it in covering the first two chapters, that uh, probably the church needed a time of healing. He went back to Ephesus. When he left Ephesus, he tried to find uh, Titus at Troas, did not find Titus at Troas, and then he went on to Macedonia and probably in Philippi, and there we believe that he came across Titus while he's at Philippi, and now he's writing this, what we call 2 Corinthians, back to the Corinthian church and about his coming, and he's going to come for a lengthy time. So that's what we covered, some of the background, First and Second Corinthians. Please go back and see it in more detail. Now we're going to jump into chapter 3. Today I have Alan, who is normally with me, but I have a new friend named Chris that has an incredible radio voice, and he's going to be listening and commenting and asking questions as well, representing you all as you would probably have questions as well. And we're going to go through chapter 3 and hopefully later on chapter 4. So let's jump right in. Uh, first of all, any questions about the background, any comments about the background before we start reading? Hey, this is Chris Kraft. I, I, I definitely appreciate the invite today, and it's, it's an honor to be able to work alongside you, you wonderful gentlemen. I, I really appreciate the way that you laid that out, and I, I see so many similarities in today, and I, I believe we'll dive into this, of course, but the, the lack of growth that he was seeing in the Corinthian church, I really noticed how much if you look across Christianity today, especially sticking as close as we can to Scripture, the increased amount of information that is available in our society today, yet the lack of knowledge and understanding of that information, the, the ease that Scripture has today with the idea of the Internet and, so, and mobile phones and things like this that we, that we almost take for granted is really interesting. We still see shallowness in Christianity today, like he did in his day. And I can almost feel his frustration sometimes. And I imagine all of us can being in ministry and seeing some of that. So I really look forward to diving into chapters three and four and seeing the similarities that we're going to see in today's society. Yes. And I, I agree with you, Chris, and with what people have at their disposal to really get into the word of God. The thing that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing this in the Western culture, because we, you know, we also have people in India that's listening, in Israel, different places, is that here in America, which represents a lot of the Western culture, even within Christianity, we have discipleship based upon topical messages and systematic theology, conclusions of others that were ingrained in systematic theology, but discipleship is not taking place through God's Word all the time. And so when I ask a believer in, uh, in America, can you share with me 2 Corinthians? Can you go through the whole letter with me? You, they have a blank stare on their face. Okay, where do I know a verse mm -hmm. within 2 Corinthians? Where do I know a verse within 1 Corinthians? And so they've heard a sermon on a verse, but it's very rare to hear a believer that says, okay, let's go through the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, because I love that letter and just see what God is saying, because what it meant at that time is what it means for me today. That's good. And so in India, you have a lot of believers 
say if we're training someone for ministry, we take them through the whole Word of God. We take them from Genesis to Revelation, and we take them through every book of the Bible. How many believers today in America can say that they have adequately studied the Word of God? It's a very rare thing. When you get into youth ministry, how many young people know the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians? How many of them know the prophet Amos? How many of them can go through and say, this is what God said to Amos to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom? Mm -hmm. So we've got to get back to the basics. And here we see the Corinthian church were babes They're still drinking milk. They should be eating meat. They should be growing up. And all of these issues that are going on within their churches because they're not rooted and grounded in God's Word. Makes sense. And so this is uh, should be conviction for all of us. Let's get back to the basics, to prayer, to the study of God's Word, of growing up through God's Word and hiding God's Word in our hearts. And let's be people of fasting and let's be people of faith, believing that God can do anything. And let's get back to the basics and get out of the, the uh, performance type understanding of how we're discipled. And in our own day of so many ways to God, the Bible needs to come back to our singular source of truth that everything else feeds from. From what I see in my my small sector of Christianity today, I see the Bible is now seen as a source of truth yes. instead of the source of truth. So we do look so many other places, which is why our young people aren't familiar. My wife and I have 13 years of youth ministry, and there's so many that don't even, they're, they're not familiar with what we would call the basics because, and honestly, I call that back to my generation. We, we haven't trained them well enough. So now it's our responsibility to call them back to the Bible as the source of truth, not a source of truth. Amen. So well put, and let's get back to the basics and see the world first and foremost through a biblical worldview. Amen. Let's jump into chapter three. And uh, Alan, if you don't mind, if we could read the first three verses here. Sure. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Amen. This is something that we've emphasized before that is very apparent in Paul's writings. Ministry confirms who you are, not because someone else says that you're a pastor or a teacher or a prophet or an evangelist or an apostle. What is the fruit of your ministry? That defines who you are. So if someone questions your apostleship, And Paul definitely saw himself as an apostle, one that laid the foundation where there was not a foundation. As you go into Romans, you're going to see that in the 15th chapter of, I I aspired to lay a foundation where there was no foundation. So people question his apostleship. But what is the fruit that really produced from his life that shows that he is used by God as an apostle to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. The church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, 
we can go on and on. The, the church at Ephesus, even though that letter is not written specifically to Ephesus, we know that he was two years, three months in Ephesus, and a great church developed at Ephesus. And it says all of Asia was reached with the gospel because of the work at Ephesus. Now, Asia, when I was young, I thought the whole continent, but it's a district that was in modern-day Turkey. So all of Asia, like Colossae and different places, was hearing the gospel by what was taking place through his life at Ephesus. That should define Mm -hmm. who we are. So you can have a denomination that says you're a pastor, but you're not a pastor until you lead people and shepherd them in the things of God. You're not a teacher unless you have people willing to say God is using you and there's fruit for the kingdom that's coming forth through that teaching of teaching of God's word. You're not a prophet unless what you prophesy comes true and they see this man speaks from God. So what Paul is saying here, you are our letter, Corinthians. You are the product of what God did through us while we were there in Corinth. So very true. I, I love I love that mindset. And there was a principle I learned several years ago from a spiritual father of mine. He said only half of learning is actually learning new information. The other half is unlearning what you think you already know that might either be false or or skewed. What I see in the ver- especially in verses two and three, is specifically verse three, is Paul is trying to help them unlearn, trying to almost rewind what they've been told. He said, clearly you are an epistle of Christ uh, ministered by us, written not with ink. He's trying to teach them the way you've been thinking. I'm trying to help you learn a new paradigm, put on a new pair of glasses, take on a new site. So he's almost trying to help them erase some of the misinformation they have. And that's the part of discipleship I think we're missing so much in our culture today, is when we come back to the Word, sometimes we have to help people understand the things you've been taught. We almost have to help them begin to doubt everything that they that they learn because today we're not taught things like critical thinking or anything like that. When you compare Scripture to our lives, it spells out so many practical truths for us that I think sometimes it gets lost in the noise. And I can hear Paul going, get rid of the noise. I'm not talking about tablets. I'm not talking about ink. And then coming back to your point, I'm talking about you. Yes. You are our ministry. So he's literally helping them put on a new paradigm by helping them erase some of the things they previously were aware of. Yes. Think about Jeremiah the prophet. His ministry was to break down, tear down, and to build up. Anytime that we bring forth the word of God, it's breaking down the things that need to be broken down. And in Jeremiah's uh, life... 40 years of ministry, he is ministering to a people that have false understandings of their relationship with God, from the, from the, the priest in Jerusalem to the false prophets that are uh, preaching peace and prosperity, to the priests, the priests in Jerusalem that are saying, when you go to the temple, say the temple of the Lord three times and God's blessing will be upon you. He has to tear down these things in order to plant the right seed in their hearts that brings forth repentance that really cries out to God. In the midst of that 40 years of ministry, he preaches about a new covenant that is not about tablets of stone. Now, you're going to see that imagery here, tablets of stone, but it's where the law is written upon your heart, where you will know God 
from the least to the greatest because of the forgiveness of sins. So you get this imagery of the new covenant here. And as we go forth, you're going to see the imagery of Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. Now remember, Romans is going to be written two years later after 2 Corinthians here. Romans, uh, the letter written to the believers at Rome is going to come two years later. And as we go through here, you kind of see a blueprint, just like you saw in Galatians. Everything that is in Galatians is in Romans as well. But you're going to see a blueprint for chapters 6, 7, and 8 as we go through this. So here, it is an understanding. It's not the letter of the law, he's going to say later. Here he's saying, written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that's going back to the whole understanding of the new covenant. And as we go through this, it's all going to be about the Spirit of God. And you're going to see that emphasis in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. It is actually the grace of God that breaks the bondage of sin, not the law. Chapter 7 is the law which should have produced life, didn't produce life, but it produced what? Death. Not life, even though the law is holy and it is good, but it brought about condemnation. And he's going to use that terminology here as well. It should have brought forth life, but it, it didn't, because when I learned not to covet, it produced in me coveting even more. Mm -hmm. Is the law unholy? No, the law is holy and it is good. The law that was written on stone is holy and it is good, but it cannot break the bondage of sin. Only Christ Jesus can do that through a life in the Spirit, and that's Romans chapter 8. So you're going to see the blueprint of Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 as we go through 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So this is going to be about the law written on our hearts is going to be but with the Spirit, and that emphasis is going to come through this whole chapter. Look at uh, verses 4 through 11. Let's go one verse at a time. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves, in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, it asks the question, and who is adequate for these things? How can we be useful? How can we have the power? How can we have adequacy within ourselves? No, that comes from God. Who also made us, verse 6, adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, if we see it through what Paul's going to say in the future in his letter to the Romans, the letter of the law, the law written on tablets of stone, is holy and it is good. It was, here he's going to say, coming from glory. However, it doesn't break the bondage of sin. Only through the Spirit of God are we transformed from the inside out. That's what the new covenant was always about, a transformation from the inside out. The law 
is from the outside, and it does not change the heart. Here, let's look at it one more time. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I I absolutely adore this part of the Scripture because it keeps bringing, if you think contextually, coming back to what Paul has had to walk through with the discipline that he's had to walk through in the church and everything else. First of all, one of the things I wanted to bring up also from verse 3, when he keeps coming back to that you are the epistle of Christ, think about Paul's mindset as he's going through the mourning process of having to bring forth this discipline in the church. He's thinking, you are, you and I, we are we are where the truth is. We are where the life is written. Yet, I've still had to take care of what we've had to take care of in people. So even with the sin, it's the correct handling of sin, the correct handling of people. And Paul's not dismissing any of this because we're reading all of this in context. But he's also making it understood, in, like in verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Literally, people were trying to take the law and making that their sufficiency. The law is going to make me sufficient. Just like you were saying, the law cannot bring complete freedom, yet they were trying. And I think we all try. Even to this day, we all want to think, if I follow enough rules, if I read enough scripture, if I spend enough time, if I beat my body enough, anything I have to do, and Paul's literally going, bring it back to Christ. Bring it back to the Messiah. If you bring it back to him, he can be your freedom. But I think deep inside of us, we all still want to earn it. We still want to appease. We want to be sufficient of ourselves. And that's where verses 5 and 6 come in. Stop trying to be sufficient. Allow Christ to make you sufficient. And follow the law to bring the sanctification like you were talking about in 1 Corinthians 16. Live the life. Become more like Christ. But don't think the actions will make you sufficient for yourself. Yes. uh, When we look at this, the normal interpretation as we go through is this is legalism versus a life in the spirit. And here in the West, we interpret legalism as the setting of rules. If you see what Paul's saying here, liberty, a life in the spirit, it is a life that can be lived in victory to reflect God's character through a life in the Spirit. And so when you look at the law, think about Romans 7. Romans 7, what should have produced life produced death. Because I was taught not to covet, but I found myself coveting everything that I came across after I was taught, probably at his bar mitzvah, as you have to go through and you have to learn the law and you have to learn it in a way that's different as the way that they learn it today, because they really had to learn the law. And growing up in a Pharisaic background in the synagogue, he probably had to learn the law and the oral law, the interpretation through the Pharisees. But it didn't produce life. In fact, he found himself practicing the very things that he knew he shouldn't be doing. And what's going to set him free? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're set free. And chapter 8 is a life in the Spirit. Now, what is the chapter 8 about? It's about a relationship with God where I can cry out, Abba, Father. It's a relationship with God when I don't even know how to pray. There is a relationship with God that even when everything from the outside is trying to destroy me, he says in chapter 8, we are like lambs being led to the slaughter. Here, 
we still walk in this relationship through the power of God's Spirit to live for Him, even though everything in our culture and everything within the government is trying to destroy us, even the sword is coming against us. Look at it this way. A life in the Spirit gives us the ability to live a life of contentment and not a life of coveting. That's good. That we're going to see in Romans 7. So it's not the absence of rules. It's the ability to have a relationship with God as Abba Father, that we're living a life reflecting the character of God, even in the worst situations that we encounter. And so it's not legalism versus the Spirit, but if you just have the law, if you just have the letter of the law, if you just have the tablets written on stone, let me ask the question, when did Israel for any extended time keep the law and honor God with the law? When did they? In fact, before they went into the land, Moses said, God told Moses, they will not keep the law and I'll scatter them among the nations. And he says to them, circumcise your hearts because he understood if God didn't have their heart, he'll never have their actions. The promise of a new covenant is coming to the end. Israel, the northern kingdom's destroyed. Judah, the southern kingdom, is just holding on because of the Davidic kingdom and the promises that came to David, but they're not listening. And in the midst of that, God is saying, a day's coming that the law is going to be written on your hearts. And you will know me because I will forgive your iniquities and your sins. I will remember no more. The whole new covenant is going to be based upon the forgiveness of God in a relationship with God where we know him. And it's from the inside out. This is what Paul understands. They were changed. They became a new creation in Christ through the spirit of God. And that's how this church was established. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 read that. It was by the Spirit of God. It was by the power of God. They were changed from the inside out. And through that relationship is where the actions change. Yes. There's an example that I that I've I think I learned it from my dad years ago. He said, Chris, the way the process works is I am married to my wife, therefore I buy her roses. He said the way the process does not work is I buy this woman roses, therefore she is my wife. And I heard that example years ago, and I thought so many of us are trying to buy roses for God. We're trying to buy, we're trying to do, but we're, we're missing the part of the covenant. It's exactly what you said. Through the new covenant is where the relationship is formed. Then, using the metaphor... From the heart. From the heart, yeah. I can buy roses with the right motives because of the relationship, not trying to earn my way into covenant. We don't, we don't have any capability in ourselves. Paul is very clear about this coming back to verse 5. We are not sufficient to earn a covenant. God has offered us the covenant through Christ. And because of that, in a sense, using the metaphor again, we have the relationship. Now I can buy the roses. Now I'm free to not covet. I'm free to not lust. I'm free to do all these things. But, but it's because of the relationship. So I love how you brought that in. And we'll continue to talk about this because it's so important for many different places. Say in Israel, where we spent many years, this issue is constantly before the believers in Israel. So the letter of the law, there's always ways to get around the letter of the law. And that's what the whole Pharisaic movement through the tradition of the elders, the oral law, does. 
And I explain it in this way. If my father says, son, do not go out this front door. I'm going to be gone for an hour. And I do not want you to go out this front door. Do you understand me? And I say, yes, father, I will not go out this front door. He's gone for an hour. He comes back. He finds me playing in the front yard. And he's upset and angry and says to me, I told you not to go out that front door. And I say to my father, I went out the window. You didn't say I couldn't go out the window. Now, that's the oral law. That's how the oral law functions. They say it builds a fence around the law. Actually, it builds inroads in and out of the law where you technically are blameless. You Mm -hmm. keep the law. But the spirit, what did I break of my father? The spirit of what he was saying. What he was saying is don't leave this house. Don't go out of this house. You stay inside of this house. But I found a technicality. And this is what I say about the law. If my parents tell me and raise me under a set of rules that are good, that are right, that are for my benefit, but if they are not things that I believe in my own heart, when I'm out of that house, I'll go and live any way that I want to. And what's going to hold me to respond and honor the way that my father has instructed me is that relationship with my father that I trust him. Mm -hmm. My father taught me this, and I trust him. He loves me, and I love him. And I don't want to do something that dishonors my father, our name, and what he has left to me. And so here, and when you look at Romans chapter 8, it's a relationship with the Father whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. You have not received a spirit of fear leading to slavery again, but a spirit of adoption as children whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. I can't wait to get to Romans 8. But this life in the Spirit, a relationship with the Father, the rule is there. But if I don't have it in my heart and there's not a life in the Spirit and a relationship with God as Father, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. So that's the context where he says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And let's continue reading here because it's so powerful what he is saying. Let's read verse 7. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moshe, of Moses, because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Now, this is a reference to the tablets of stone. How much glory was upon Moses that the children of Israel could not look upon him. There had to be a veil over his face. But that was the tablets of stone that produced death for Israel. Whose glory was passing away, as it says. Yes, and it's passing away, but it came in glory. Mm -hmm. There was not any mistake in the law that was given to Moses. In fact, the law that was given to Moses brought us to the Messiah. It was a guardian and a tutor that would lead us to Christ. Verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. You think that the, what happened to Moses on the tablets of stone was glorious. Think about what God does through his spirit where the law is written on our hearts that were changed from the inside out. Verse 9, For if the ministry 
of condemnation has glory. What is that talking about? What produced condemnation within Israel? The law written on the The tablets of stone. stone. You're going to see that same terminology in Romans chapter 7, the condemnation of the law. So let me read this again. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. A life in the Spirit, the tablets written on our hearts, a new covenant, a life of freedom, a life of liberty to live for God by God's Spirit within us. You think Moses and the tablets of stone and the glory that came from that that has faded away, it doesn't even come close to what we experience today in a life in the Spirit. Very true. Verse 12. Alan, if you don't mind reading verses 12 through 18, and we'll finish this chapter here. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it was removed in Christ. But to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over the heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So this is concluding everything that we have talked about, looking at if you put your identity and your confidence in the law of Moses, which is veiled, and not in the fulfillment of the law in Christ, there's a veil. And he's speaking to those, and when we get to chapter 4, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Probably in reference back to Israel, back to the Jewish people, there is a veil because they haven't come into the fullness of Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, and a life in the Spirit. So in verse 15, but to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Now, this is not speaking against the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law. This is speaking about having your confidence in the tablets of stone and not coming in to the tablets written on your heart, a life in the spirit through a new covenant through Christ. If you have not received Christ you are missing the whole intent of the law was to lead us to the Messiah. And this liberty that we have, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Most times people quote that as saying that I can have liberty. It's not about the law of Moses, and I don't have to do this, and I don't have to do that, and I can go live any way that I want to. Not most people say that. That's the vocabulary sometimes I hear from believers, 
but it's the understanding through the Spirit of God, I have the liberty and the freedom to live for God, to know Him as Father, to have the law of God written in my heart, and the character of God can flow through my life. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Singular. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You see, when I have a life in the Spirit, the law cannot condemn me because mm-hmm. I'm reflecting the character of God. Who God is, is flowing through my life through the Spirit of God. And if I just have the law of Moses, I'm living under a veil. Freedom truly hasn't come of how to live and honor God. So very true. In verses 16 through 18, the way that they work together, I adore this. Because verse 17 being kind of the linchpin, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty coming right after the verse that says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's the freedom. There's the freedom where there is no veil. There is nothing coming in between us and the glory that is revealed on the tablets that are written in our hearts. And what does that liberty entail? What does it what is the fullness of the liberty that we receive? What, what does it look like after it's finished? We see that in verse 18, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When we receive the liberty, it does not keep us in captivity, which is what happens when we have our own definition of liberty. Just like you were talking about, when we believe that we are free to do whatever we want, that's actually completely out of context, just like you mentioned of Scripture. When we receive this liberty, when we receive this liberty, it allows us to be transformed into what God wants us to be in the first place. The veil is gone. There's nothing in the way. We have the freedom to be transformed. From glory to glory, this understanding of going from glory to glory, a life in the Spirit, And I just want to leave one other thought that goes all the way back to Galatians, which is a battle over the law and the Spirit, how we come to God by grace through faith and we stand complete in Christ. There is a greater understanding of how we are to live than the law of Moses could ever present to us. And Paul says it in this way, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but it's Christ who lives in me. In this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave up his life for me. So anybody that wants to try to see, oh, the law of Moses, we're not under any of that. We don't have to fulfill that. Of course, it's fulfilled in the Messiah. But it's such a deeper understanding, a life in the Spirit, a relationship with God, of what it requires of us. It requires everything. A dead man doesn't have aspirations, doesn't have a will, doesn't have a future because they're dead. So as you come to God through Jesus Christ, through a life in the Spirit, listen to what Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So Paul's future is not about Paul. It's about glorifying God through following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ in me. It's all about the power of the Messiah within me, the power of God's Spirit within me. And this life that I live in the flesh, he had about 30 years of ministry before they cut his head off, was about walking in faith in the Son of God, 
the one who loved me and gave up his life for me, about following him, denying himself, taking up his own cross, and following the Lord Jesus Christ. How could anyone say, oh, now I have liberty, I can go live any way that I want to? Absolutely not. We have freedom and liberty to be a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness, to be bound to him. I am a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Alan, I think you had some words there. No, I think you covered it, Scott. And I was, I'm just thinking about this veil, and the reason Moses had this veil was because the glory was fading in his face, too, so the Israelites couldn't look intently on it. But also, they, they didn't need to see this thing fading away. And even at that time, the law and the glory that it was was still fading. And so if we live with that veil in our hearts... We can't see that the law has been removed, as Paul mentioned, by the covenant in verse 16. Even back then, when, when the law was established, it was immediately starting to fade. The glory was immediately fading from that. And that's a powerful picture of, you know, the old covenant and how God in his wisdom knew this was going to fade away. This isn't the final thing that I have for my believers, for my people, the Israelites then and believers now. The fulfillment and the ultimate plan was to give us this new covenant, to write that law on our hearts and to let us walk in the freedom that the law could never and can never give. Now we have that in Christ, and it's, it's a powerful thing to think that Moses, Abraham, the Israelites, all of them were looking for this day. And then people that still want to follow the law, the people that gave that, that, that God used to give that to you, didn't want you to walk in that. They wanted to see this. They wanted to see the fulfillment through Jesus Christ, through the Messiah. So why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to be under that when even, even the patriarchs and the people of faith in the Old Testament knew this was coming and this was what they were striving to see and hopeful that they would see, you know, in eternity? So. Right. Yeah, don't go back to a life of law and, and being under that. Go to the life of Christ and freedom where you, you can have the ability to follow it. I mean, you can have the ability to walk in his grace and his mercy because he gives it to you because you have the Messiah inside of you. Yes, and I, I would say it in this way. The law that was given to Moses on tablets of stone, we're looking at the Ten Commandments that was written by God, given to him. The glory was so great upon Moses that the people could not even look upon his face, so he had to have a veil. I see the fading away in the same context as Hebrews. It's becoming obsolete. That the law is fulfilled in Christ, and the veil has been lifted now, and the glory has come to us through the Messiah, through a life in the Spirit. And it's not about going back and putting yourself under the law of Moses because it's fulfilled in the Messiah. And now it's written on our hearts, which produces the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And when we have the fruit of the Spirit, how can we go back and try to have our identity through the law of the Moses when the fruit of the Spirit is being produced through the Messiah through Christ within us that's producing what God wanted to see in the first place from the nation of Israel. When we try to have two identities, this is one thing we're going to see in Romans chapter 7. I keep mentioning Romans 6, 7, and 8. You cannot go back to the first husband we're going to talk about. We, it's almost 
in the context of spiritual adultery once we have come to the Messiah to now try to go back to the law of Moses that's fulfilled in him. And now we have a life in the Spirit. So freedom, liberty to live for God, freedom, liberty to have a relationship with God, freedom and liberty because the mercy and grace of God has come to us, God's forgiveness has come to us. Now we can live a life of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. We can live a life of contentment. I don't have to be jealous and coveting everything that Alan has and everything that Chris has and say, um, why, God, haven't you done that in my life? I want what you have and to live a life of coveting. Why? I have the greatest gift of all. God's salvation has come to my life. Eternal salvation has come. And I have liberty to be free from coveting. Now I can be what? Content. I am content. I am blessed. I will never be more blessed than I am right now in Christ, in the Messiah. A life in the Spirit is what it's all about. This is what is being preached here and taught to the Corinthians. They knew this. This is how they began. But now there are others within the church that are trying to bring them under bondage. Later on, we're going to see some of them are even slapping them in the face to try to bring them under spiritual submission and the abuse that's going to take place. But we have liberty and freedom to live for God through a life in the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. I pray, Lord, that we understood the original intent, what it meant of what you spoke to Paul to the church at Corinth, to these precious believers that are going through a spiritual battle and need to grow up but there's confusion that's going on within the community of faith. Lord, I just pray that we'll learn from that and we will come under the banner of Christ and we will know a life in the Spirit that honors you in everything that we do. We pray this in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.